0: Welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton, and I'm your host. I've been looking forward to doing this episode for a long time now. Today's guest is Commander Paul Galanti, United States Navy, retired. Paul was shot down over Vietnam June 17, 1966, while flying his 97th combat mission. He was held prisoner by the North Vietnamese communists for over six and a half years, 2000, 432 days to be exact. During his captivity, he was subjected to extreme torture, starvation, and isolation for long periods of time. And here's an interesting connection to my father, Dick Stratton. Although they never met face-to-face while they were in Vietnam, Paul was the first American to make contact with my father in the Wallow prison after he was shot down approximately six months after Paul. Listen to episode number three, Who Won the Army-Navy Game, to learn more about that from my father's perspective. Paul risked grave physical danger and torture by making contact from behind a wall, but he did it to help his fellow American flyer that was new to the prison system. I'll be asking Paul about that in a future episode of the podcast for sure. Paul, a big shout out to you. I'm grateful that you're sitting down with me for these podcast sessions. I've always had great respect and admiration for you. So let's get right to it. I hope everyone enjoys this first of many conversations I'm going to be having with this great American hero. Paul, the first thing I, I want to ask you: so you are a 1962 Naval Academy graduate, but you came from an Army family. So tell everybody a little bit about that and how that came to be. Why why didn't you go to West Point?
1: Well, actually, what I wanted to do from the time my dad my dad was an Army engineer, and his battalion built uh, air bases in World War II. Several of the big ones are still open. Kadena, and the lodges in the Azores. But uh, I was around airplanes growing up, and I wanted to fly. So uh, Dad was in in the Army, but the Army had terrible airplanes to fly. We called them trash haulers or whatever. (laughs) Uh, Little Piper Cubs and and, uh, and helicopters. And I didn't want that. So my original game plan was uh, the the Army Air Corps morphed off into the uh, Air Force. So I figured, well, I'd go to that. They just started the air force Academy and it was really hard to get in. It was very small. They had a West point graduates acting as upperclassmen. And, uh, so it, it, I actually applied for all three academies and, uh, uh, I got accepted the Navy and I did a little research. It never dawned on me that somebody had to be flying those airplanes off aircraft carriers. <laughs> I didn't even realize But I could, did not spell Navy. Um, and I uh, ended up going to the Naval Academy. I got in and uh, uh, actually it was a very high, uh, it's, it's a, uh, I couldn't get a congressional appointment then, and, and I got presidential, but it was very high up because the Naval Academy had very tough to get into. So I said, well, it's, you know, uh, we'll see how it goes. And uh, um, oh, The F-4 came out in 1958 when all this was going on and uh it was the fastest airplane in the world and so I said, "Wow, that's a navy airplane and the air <laughs> force The Air Force hadn't copied it yet, and so um uh, that was so, a pretty wow, neat air reason up right there okay well it was made a lot of noise it converted a lot of j p five into smoke and and noise,
0: yeah. Well, uh, so we were talking the other day, and, and you were sharing. Uh, you know, everybody or, or most people, at least, are fortunate enough to have really uh, in positive, influential people in their lives. And you were, when we talked the other day, you you were telling me about one particular marine corps captain captain bill Lefwich, who was a company officer there at the naval academy when you got there what kind of impression did he make on you uh at at the academy and and did he all, did he almost uh get you go Navy or uh, marine corps air uh
1: originally that was my plan um i don't i don't do well it when uh, boats start rocking back and forth but i never got sick in an airplane so um um the, my original plan was to uh go to the Naval Academy and go in the Marine Corps and, and uh fly their airplanes. And my company officer, the first two years at Navy were uh Lieutenant Varsity Vic Vine, who was a who played football at Navy and was one hell of a good guy. And so okay, he's are very jovial uh guys. So we had the our company commander was captain of the football team and so Vic was happy, and he really didn't care about the military stuff. And uh, uh, I mean, I I did because I knew it from Valley Forge Military Academy, and plus I wanted to go into the Marines. So there are other guys in my company, uh, 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 the way we did the Grease and if you remember, they they, they prorate it, and if you had 30 guys, and somebody has to be bottom and somebody has to be top. Yeah. And I had I had enough top votes, and I finished really high in my class because. Not because I was so good because the other guys of my company were so bad They just bowled me to the top like a cork. But I was number one in military Greece in, in the first couple of years. And then um uh, it, it was um, but then we switched companies. And and oh Bill Leftwich was he was we were in the twenty second company. He was company officer of the twenty first company, right upstairs. And I just remember how sharp he was. Just unbelievable. But the, the company was awful. I mean they had the, their first class for turbulence lost like half of their plebes the first semester. And wow. we didn't lose anybody. So we they were pretty they
0: were pretty company. tough on them there, huh?
1: <laughs> they were. But I went in that company. And nobody <laughs> nobody messed around with us because they have to go through the half of the seniors on the football team to do that. So uh, anyway, but but Bill definitely just remember just how sharp he was. And but one of my favorite things, Joe Bolino was a year ahead of me. And it was, we played, it was actually the last game we played Maryland in because there was such a rumble following that game. And and uh, we beat on about 90 yard run with just a couple of minutes to go. And Navy won by the skin of their teeth. And, uh, so all the men were around, you running around cheering on the, down on the field. The fraternity boys from Maryland decided they wanted to come down and get our hats. And, <laughs> and, 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 and they came, they came down and, uh, um, uh, Captain Left was just going around. And the Marines carry swagger sticks. There, he's he's pointing his uh, swagger stick at these. said, "Break it up, Mitty! Break it up! Break it up! Break it up!" And, uh, and some Maryland student, unfortunately, grabbed his hat and t- tried to take his hat. And he moved as fast as I've ever seen a human being move. And swung around, hit that uh, student the bridge of his nose with that swagger stick. All I remember is just seeing this big splash of blood on this kid's head. This kid goes down holding his nose. And Leftwich gets up with that swagger stick. He's going, break it up over there, middies break it up.
0: When you were talking about Bill Leftwich the other day, and that that it's it's not a real common name. And I thought to myself, I wonder if I know his son. And so his son graduated in the in a class at the academy. Somewhere around 1980, 81, or 82, his name's yep. Scott Lefwich, oh, yeah. and, and I actually know Scott. I've known him for many years. He lives in Nashville. He's a super guy. So uh, I, I thought that was pretty neat that you mentioned. Well, I, think, uh, that's, I think that's where
1: his dad was from. I think he was from Nashville. But I knew Scott as a midshipman when I was back as a, when I knew your dad uh, back at the academy.
0: When you guys were at the Naval Academy, did they keep you in the same company the entire four years, or did they move you after a period they, of time?
1: They moved us as a group to another company. It started with our class; we we're the first ones to okay. do that for a while. It happens every once in a while. Some of them they scramble everybody, and some of them they um, go as a group, um, and or they. I know. With, they had 24 companies when I was a mid and they had 36 when you were there. Right. And, um, and that was a big shuffle. And anyway, we didn't like it, but
0: I didn't like uh, it either. So they scrambled so our class. I, I didn't really like that.
1: It's, um, it is, nothing ever changed at the Naval Academy. So, uh, somebody had to get a Navy achievement medal for something. <laughs> That's what I'm sure what it was for.
0: So what company did they move you, move you to when they, when well, they moved you?
1: Well, we went to the, our company it was the 4th Battalion, which was the worst battalion for plebes in the entire history of the Naval Academy up to that point, except for our company. We were the 22nd company. Like I said, we had Varsity Vic Vine was our company officer, jovial naval aviator, one of those big floppy hats with the white, yeah. that, no grommet in it. And he um, flew P5Ms and played as a running back in Navy as a, as a midshipman. And everybody liked Varsity Vic Vine. And he didn't like that nickname. Um, but the rest of the, uh, uh, in the first season of our company, they didn't care because they liked him and we were doing well for them and, and him and not for anybody else. And uh, so, so we did, did pretty doggone well and in, uh, including winning a, a whole lot of competitions. Uh, and, uh, but then they decided the powers that be, we had too many clicks in these underclassmen. So let's break it up and we'll take them, they switch second class and so they go in to run the plebes they'll be good for us. So, so off we went from the 22nd, the loose double deuce to the 19th company uh, Company officer, Captain Lane Buck Rogers, U.S. Marine Corps, who was actually a pretty funny guy. Um, uh, he was Salty Sam when he was a midshipman. You know, sort of an ironic sense of humor. But like all the Marines, he didn't tolerate. The only thing we didn't like to do in the 22nd company was march. And everything else, we'd, we'd won all the, comp- all the professional competitions except infantry drill and marching and all that stuff. And, and Buck Rogers is the only Marine in the 4th Battalion, which we moved into the 19th company. Had a, he had a Navy battalion officer and three other Navy uh, lieutenants for company officers and, and uh, Captain Rogers. And then we come Pelusas, uh second class anywhere coming right out of the 22nd company into this bastion of Marine training. <laughs> and uh, after about two months, Captain Rogers called me as an officer, Mr. Galani. These, I was a second class company commander. They said, These uh, underclass rooms are looking terrible. I said, Yes, sir. <laughs> I said, what are you going to do about them? I said, What we'll do about, you know, uh, they know how to clean, keep them clean. I said, No, 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 no. You're a second class company commander. It's your responsibility to get them to square their rooms away. Really? <laughs> That's <laughs> what second class do? We didn't do that at 22nd Company. Anyway, that lasted for another month, and I dropped. 812 numbers. I went from from number one to number 812 out of 860 in Greece in one semester. And I had to go see the commandant. He said, (laughs) that's supposed to be at Greece. The real name was Military Aptitude. He said, that's not supposed to change. So we have never had anybody drop that far before. I had to go see our commandant then. And I said, well, Captain Rogers and I don't see eye to eye. There's he a said, little change
0: in expectations,
1: I guess. Oh, yeah, there was. <laughs> and uh, he, said, he said, Have you learned anything from this? He said, Yeah, I've learned it. Um, uh, if Captain Rogers wants something. I better do it. But it was too late by then. I was on my way out. And I yeah. discovered it was more fun being a, a 2PO and chasing girls and doing all that other sort of stuff that even like to do rather than being on the commandant's team.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, um, You eventually, when you graduated from from the Naval Academy class in 1962, you ended up choosing Navy air uh, over Marine Corps air, and you headed down to Pensacola uh, to start your flight training, and you— Uh, you got your wings and then you completed your advanced jet training in November 1963. What did you do from there? Did you go straight to the fleet or did you have a tour before that?
1: No, I got uh, about 40 of us uh, just uh, finishing a flight training, got orders into back into the training command. And I happened to go to VT one, which is a primary training and spent 10 months. I got 80 hours in that 10 months, which is about eight times more than I'd get in the uh, in the fleet. But it was primarily, I was in the back seat of a, a T-34 with a bunch of little students. that didn't even know how to turn on an airplane Right. when they got there. And so, but it was, you know, it was a very interesting. It got to be very smooth. I got used to watching instruments and stuff because I knew they were watching. If I was supposed to be a certain there. they knew it was off 10, 15, 20 feet. They know that that was bad. So I had to be very careful. And it really helped me as, me as a pilot just watching them and demonstrating things because my airspeeds had to be right on, my altitudes had to be right on, I had to be exactly the right place, I had to land right smack in the middle of the runway. Uh, at exactly where I wanted to put it down. So it, it helped me a lot. But it was, so it, was but it was 10 months. Um, uh, it, just just before I got my wings, Phyllis and I got married. She moved to Beeville for about three weeks until I got my wings and so on. This is our first experience together. So uh, I was a flight instructor working about 15 hours a day, uh, but it was fun. We, we really had a good time.
0: So you, 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 uh, let, let me just ask you, I, I want to uh, finish up that thought there before you move forward. So you mentioned Phyllis, who, of course, is your wife uh, for everybody that's listening, uh, Phyllis Galanti. Did you meet her at the Naval Academy, and did you date her there? Did you meet her when you are in Pensacola?
1: No, I met her way before that. We're both Army brass. I met her in Turkey, but I uh, wasn't dating. I mean, I was going to school at Valley Forge Military Academy, prep school, and um, she was one of the local honeys. Uh, My mom was, the kiss of death was when your mother works for the school and your mother <laughs> thinks the girl's really neat. It's the kiss of death. So um, I was doing other things that, that the graduate of a military school does, which is since I had this only kid my age, whose uh, parents would let him drive in Turkey. Uh, I was sort of king of the highway. And so I was having a whole lot of fun that year. I met her at, at certain parties and stuff. What happened was uh, her dad had the misfortune to get reassigned to Fort Meade, Maryland, and at her house uh, in the Colonel's, uh, Colonel's Row at Fort Meade was eight miles from the main gate of the Naval Academy
0: oh wow and here
1: comes here comes plebe paul galani and my dad was still overseas he got orders to france from turkey he went right to france and i found out i flew back uh as they were moving and uh, started the naval academy interestingly my brother who was a senior at valley forge hadn't heard anything and after i got accepted to navy he found out he got accepted to west point so for four years my brother Phil and I were at, at, the, at the Army-Navy game. There's one good guys and bad guys, so one of us was the good guy and one was the bad guy. And the good news is, Navy won three of the four years we were at the uh, service academies. The bad news was the one we lost was plebe year.
0: Oh yeah, you want Yeah, you want to win that plebe Army-Navy game so you get your carry on <laughs> uh, for sure. So. Um, did did you date Phyllis then? Uh, pretty much all through your years at Annapolis. Or? Yeah, we started.
1: Well, my dad was still overseas, so her parents and my parents were good friends. And uh, they, I couldn't get back from uh, Christmas time for the from my uh, uh, from the naval academy. They only were allowed one trip a year, and most of the guys used that for their uh, space available. Used right. that for their uh, 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 summer cruise. So I went. Uh, Anyway, her her mom and dad invited me to stay over at their house. And that was, um, not realizing that was a kiss of death for their daughter. (laughs) But a lot of things transpired between the four years of the academy. And we dated uh, 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 at the end, after I got my wings, of course, she was still William and Mary. And uh, so we had to postpone it after she graduated, which happened to coincide with me being in Navy flight training. And so we got engaged, and and uh, ended up <laughs> having to uh, uh, figure out a date where we could get time to do it. Because unlike the Air Force and the Army and stuff like that, our classes were determined. You went as fast as you could, and I was way ahead of the rest of my class. Figured I'd right. finish about about um, Labor Day, and that's a, at least that's a three-day weekend. So we said we'll just do the, the wedding there, and uh, uh, uh and Go back and finish up flight training, right? And that work. Yeah, you
0: you really did finish up flight training quickly because you graduated in the spring of 1962 from the Naval Academy. You had completed advanced jet training by November of '63, so that's really quick. And then you spent the ten months as a flight instructor uh, at Pensacola. So. You got a didn't lot of flight Pensacola. hours quick.
1: I didn't, I didn't get to Pensacola for several months because I was TAD um, down at um, uh, uh, Little Creek. And I was oh, okay. stationed on an LST. Uh, at, uh, and the only, only VIP I met there was uh, Admiral John McCain. Oh, he wow. Was head of, he was head of Fib Land then. And uh, he was coming by to inspect this boat I was on, the USS DeSoto County. And since nobody else on that, uh, I mean, they, this is the, uh, the Gator Navy back when I mean, the grungiest uh, 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 jeans that the, uh, the sailors are wearing, the, those coverall blue blue coveralls, and the, uh, uh, the, the uniforms are messy, and it's a World War II LST. And uh, uh, But anyway, they, they didn't even know what a sword was, and so I got to be in charge of the troops for welcoming the Admiral aboard. And he thought that was pretty sharp. And so but that went from there to Pensacola and, and was zipping right on through flight training and didn't have any, any stags along the way. And um, um, got orders back to primary, which is a good deal for a newly married guy because it was least shore duty for that whole year. Right. And of uh, um, course, we had a big crunch then. The Vietnam was just gearing up and we needed naval aviators like crazy. So we're flying about three and four and five hops a day. students
0: yeah so that that i I was going to ask you about that also so the entire time you were in flight training and then as an instructor pilot did you know when you finished you were going to be going to an uh to a fleet squadron and heading over to vietnam probably
1: i knew what squadron was going to be we got that done that on september or so and finished up there i had to i had to be down in uh um uh, refresher training in the in January or not refresher training, but um, uh, yeah, what was it? Re- refresher training in Navy Jets? And then went out to Labrador to finish. Okay, uh, and I got out there in January, but um, that uh, whole time was it was uh, uh, w- it was wonderful, and I didn't want A fours at that. I wanted A fours, but my three we had three different airplanes we could fly out of the training command then. The F four which everybody wanted. The F eight which everybody wanted. And the A four. Which is a, a a neat little jet, but we wanted these things that made noise and went fast. And uh so he promised me anything i for being plowed back. I get anything I wanted. Well, my first choice in fighters was F fours out of Miramar. The first choice of uh second choice was F eights out of Miramar. And third choice was A fours out of uh, uh Oceana and or Jacksonville but was the East coast a four Cause that's where Phyllis was. And so, uh, and she had family there. Well, um, long story short, I got the six, I had six choices. <laughs> I got the six it kept saying, Oh, you're going to get first choice. But it's absolutely the best thing that ever happened. I really enjoyed the A4. We had more fun, you know, flying over the Sierras and going over the top, inverted and buzzing the tourists, right. looking out over the overpasses and, chasing uh Mustangs all over the Nevada desert on the way to Fallon. It was just a great time. I'm really glad I got A4s.
0: So when you completed when you completed your tour as a flight instructor and you're finishing up in Pensacola, you're getting ready to report out to VA two sixteen in Lamore, California. Had you ever flown the A-4 at that point, or did you have to get trained in it uh, before?
1: You I, the to... only only jet I'd ever flown was a turboprop airliner going down to uh, 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 Houston for our uh, honeymoon, our two-day honeymoon. I'd never been in a jet before. And uh, we didn't oh, have— wow. I was on uh, the plebe detail at the academy the second class year, so I had to go through aviation summer. But I figured I knew, what, I knew a lot about it already. I knew all the planes I'd known them since I was a little kid. And uh, so I didn't think that was a big deal. But my first jet ride was in a T2 in, in Meridian, Mississippi, in, uh, in basic jet.
0: Okay. And is that where you did the advanced jet training there? Uh, that
1: basic jet. That basic was, I went from T-34s t- t- and VT-1 in Pen- Field, Pensacola, then um, basic jet at Meridian, Mississippi, a brand new brand new base at the, the time and then finished that, and then went on to Corpus Christi um, for advanced jet. And then, then we got spread out to two jet bases. Okay. Uh, I went to end up at Beeville, Texas.
0: Okay. Well, so once you get out get out to Lemoore, California, uh, and you join uh, VA 216, um, what were you all doing back then before you left in November of 1965 that uh, VA 216 uh, deployed on the USS Hancock in November of 1965 to Vietnam. So, what what did you spend that year doing with VA oh, 216?
1: I went, I, well, I went to the rag at Lamore at VA 125 to train the the two syllabus, One with the, the the guys with lots of hours, second tour, and then one with the Nuggets. That was in that category, even though I had 1,800 hours and um, so I really ripped that program apart. But I was going to VA-216 anyway. And uh, I got orders to VA-216 in October of 65, but after going through the RAG. So I knew I was going to that squadron. So they were around. They got back. They were out at sea. Uh, the, uh, that, it wasn't the Gulf of Tonkin, but it was the next iteration of the war starting up. So these guys they had a combat cruise when they came back. But anyway, so the Trent, but the squadron came back from the cruise at their hostile fire pay party. So I got to hear all these great stories, but they came back about the same time I was finishing the rag. And then I just joined the squadron, spent a lot of time doing a uh, squadron duty officer and, um, and stuff like that. But it was it's a good time. The squadron wasn't doing much. Right. Like I had, had a very busy division, aircraft division, which had five shops that took care of the airplanes. And, uh, uh, it was a good learning experience for me. But then we started flying the same kind of flights. We were flying in the rag. Except I had all these combat veterans for role models. Right. It was a good time. Good time. But befo-
0: before you actually deployed and started uh, your trip overseas to end up in Vietnam, did you do any shorter deployments uh, on an aircraft carrier offshore off the coast of California, maybe?
1: So we had several short, short cruises. The, the carrier had to keep going back out anyway. They had about a week off or ten days off, and they had to go out to carequal you know, All of the West Coast squadrons were in the rag, and, um, and and so, but we were we were going around doing the same thing we were doing in the rag, except a, a lot more professional. You know, we did the, the sandblower, low level uh, flights uh, in the rag. It was like five hundred feet, and when we got in the squadron, and it's like one hundred. We were flying uh, really doing some low stuff, some fun stuff. Um, we're doing things we didn't do in the rag. I go up over the Rockies like that, roll over the top of them, come down the backside. And buzz the tourists that on these overlooks right. up in Yosemite, and chase chase the wild horses across the desert. Uh, it was really, really, really a fun time, good time working up. And then um, it was going great until my skipper called all the wives in. He said, "I'm going to try and bring all these guys back." Is said, just be aware that. Uh, we're going to have probably have some widows after this cruise, so that, that sort of dampened Phyllis's enthusiasm. I'm sure. A fours with the we were the, the bulk for the Navy then. They had they had A sixes, but they had A six squadrons are going to sea with 135 tech reps in each squadron just to keep them flying. Wow. And, uh, and we had our little A fours that's been around since 1953, and uh, uh, it was a uh, this is a good workhorse. So we were flying a lot and we never missed any sorties because A4 was so reliable and so simple that um, uh, it was always ready to go. But the other, our sister squadron was newer and, and actually had some transistors in, in its electronics set of vacuum tubes. And, uh, uh, but we never missed a sortie, they did. And all the new airplanes like the A6 kept missing sorties, the F4. And we, our squadron never missed a sortie for the entire cruise
0: that's that's fantastic um good old reliable a fours my dad my my dad uh, has all kinds of shirts and jackets and patches with a fours forever on them. i mean he he really liked that aircraft too so in november in nineteen sixty five you're you're getting ready to leave with your squadron on the u s s hancock and uh we were talking the other day and you told me there there is actually a couple of significant events that took place on, on the way, uh, over to Vietnam. So first off you departed California and you stopped in Hawaii for about a week and Phyllis was able to come over and spend a little bit of time with you there. And that, that was the last time you were going to see her for quite a long time at that point, wasn't it?
1: Yep. Yeah. Well, it was, and we really had a lot of fun. I mean, uh, uh, we, we, we passed the uh, ORI with flying colors. Everybody was happy and in a good mood. And, but I just remember happy hour at the Pearl Harbor Officers Club. <laughs> and the first time, only time in my life I ever saw my child bride drunk. And these <laughs> the guys are poured, poured alcohol down her. And it's it kind of a rock band. And um, one of the guys in our squad was a real character, our safety officer, who was told by our skipper, they had the most worthless job in the Navy. This all a safety officer does is hamper operational readiness. (laughs) And he was a character, Fred Baldwin, the bald baron. He called himself, and he was he was acting like he's hitting on Phyllis and making a big thing. And the funniest thing that happened that night: happy hour, lots of noise, everything. It's one of those times the band stopped and all the chatter stopped at the same time. You hear a pin drop in this whole room, and my sweet little child bride popped up with, "Cram it, Fred." Fred Ball. so anyway, she became a heroine of the squire for doing that
0: how How old then, were you guys at that at that point in time
1: i was sixty five i was twenty six wow and you know um i thought i was old i have been a flight instructor for a year
0: yeah boy that that's that's pretty neat so you you got to spend a little time with Phyllis in Hawaii, so I'm sure that was great and then you left in uh on the Hancock and before you uh deployed over to vietnam you went to japan first and so tell why why did most of the carriers go to japan before they went to vietnam well there are a
1: lot of assets you needed to have for combat that you didn't necessarily need to fly around Nevada, california okay, a lot of uh code books and things like that have in the airplane so if you got challenged you wouldn't get shot down by your own airplanes and stuff like that just uh combat maps. We got to refresh a bunch of things that we probably could have gotten California. But it was our last could be our last shot before going into combat. So we went steaming over to uh, uh, Yuska, uh where, where I lived in when I was in fifth grade. We lived in, the, uh, uh, in Japan. And, and I went down as a Cub Scout and, and saw these battle damaged airplanes uh, coming back from Korea painted blue. They look the same as a fours, but they're painted blue. And uh and so but it was a uh, kind of a you know, a happy hour from when we landed and we landed and uh had beer for us at the at the flight line and went over to the BOQ and, and checked in, but there's a happy hour in the BOQ. We went over and this big meal, lots of alcohol during that. And then uh the Hatsi bath, the little Japanese girls were jumping up and down on us, and then we went uh went back and hit the air and just crashed. And about twenty minutes after my head hit the pillow, there's a knock on my door. And there's my ops officer, the guy I most wanted to be like, ever in the Navy, a former Blue Angel, Lou Chatham came in and said, Hey, "Wapo, your bird is due at QB tomorrow morning at eight o'clock." And I'm looking at it, it's eleven up, and this is up in Japan. It's a long flight to the Philippines from, and so, all right. So anyway, we kind of went weaving over to the uh, flight line. He had a cup of coffee for me, and I'm sipping on it. We did a flight plan, which is basically point south and keep going and and uh i I was really splashed a4 was a great little airplane it only had a couple of electronic things one of which was the autopilot but they never worked and the way you found out it didn't work was you turned them on you immediately pulled two negative g's and bounced your head off the canopy
0: that's not fun so
1: so i'm I'm sitting i'm I'm seeing two lines and everything got taken off and i got the thing airborne pointing it south and climbing out, climbing out, climbing out, climbed above the clouds. All of a sudden, there's beautiful stars all over the place. And I got up to you know, 25 or 30,000 feet, whatever the altitude was. And uh, I said, I wonder if the autopilot works. And so I reached out, hit the on switch, and basically I flipped the switch. And said, it works! It works! <laughs> I actually had autopilot, working autopilot. And so I got the thing all trimmed up, and I'm uh, joining along at, uh, I think, 420 knots, um, which are long-distance cruising. And uh, I'm just looking out the window and um, watching all these beautiful stars. And suddenly I hear, Diamondback694, this is Kadena approach. Do you copy? Over. Uh, Roger, Kadena, what seems to be the problem? Said Sir, you overflew us. You're about 100 miles south now. Do you have enough gas to get back? And so all I could think was, um, so anyway, so there I am landing. I roll out to um, Kadena. And um, when I, as soon as I stopped, I looked down, my f- fuel gauge had gone to zero. I turned the engine off, but it started actually, I was already stopped, but the engine wound down because it's totally out of fuel. Wow. So, That's so cutting said, it. Uh, anyway, so Kadena, my dad built Kadena in World War II. I'd never been there. And, and so going through base ops, there's a sign up there saying that, uh, the US Army uh, 801st Aviation Engineer Battalion. Lieutenant Colonel Phil Galani, uh, commanding, and so I, I got to see him. And so I thought that was, I called him, when I got.
0: Uh, I bet it was great to arrive there without running out of gas.
1: Well, you know, that I was the big. I just, I mean, I, I do. I thought I had enough to make it, and, and plus, you, know, you can run out of gas a couple or three minutes short of that of when it's really going to end. Out, you'd still be on the runway, rolling out, and right. You know, uh, but anyway, so I, they gassed the airplane up, and I went and refiled. This time, uh, I didn't turn the autopilot on. I just manually flew the airplane all the way to the Philippines. and landed and not been asleep for 30 hours. And so it was... uh, Wow. Went up to the... Checked in the BOQ, turned the airplane over, and said... I got the room and just went upstairs. And that's the last thing I remember that day. And then late at night, um, uh, it was a a good time. So anyway... I got picked pick up an airplane in the morning as the, as the ship was heading toward the Philippines. I flew out and picked it up. I thought, oh, this is really cool. I'm 26 years old Man, I'm flying this airplane all over the far East with just me. And it's got uh, just basically dead reckoning navigation beyond 200 miles. And, um, I'm going out to look for my ship and I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And that, that, that was December 17th. We got to on the line and, um, I flew my first combat mission.
0: Tell me it one more before. thing. There's one more thing okay. I wanted to ask you about before we start talking about uh, getting out onto the line and starting to fly combat missions. When you arrived at Japan, you saw Jeremiah Denton on television. Um, can t- Tell us about that, because I think that's really significant and really kind of ominous. Well,
1: at that first night, we were, I went over to the club for dinner. And there's Japanese television on there. They didn't have, uh, if they had AFRS, they weren't using it. But it was just, it was Japanese television. And it was the news and it was the Japanese sing-song and everything like that. And all of a sudden, there's this American voice. And I looked up and this guy dressed in these pajamas with it. and uh, it said, uh, Commander Jeremiah Denton, uh, the prisoner of war. And, uh, and they kept saying... Uh, you are you, disgraceful people He said no I'm, I'm doing my what I'm supposed to do but his eyes were going blinking T-O-R-T yeah and, and did, the you, did you did you
0: realize that when you saw his eyes blinking was it done in such a way that you that you thought something was odd about what oh, was yeah,
1: because well, because he was talking like this while his eyes were Making these very exaggerated things, and uh, uh, it was obviously he he would, didn't want to be there, and he just they right. kept saying yeah I'm here to do but whatever my government wants me to do and blah blah just it was the party line just perfect, but uh, it occurred to me that something's wrong there. He said that that's not the way uh, 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 naval commanders. He was the uh, acting skipper of his squadron when he was shot down, and he was uh, um, uh, that's not the way people talked. We said something's wrong, and, and I just remember my squadron commander knew him, and said, "I uh, said Jerry's a tough guy." And they, they did. Stockdale was down also, and uh, and so they're tough guys; they'll they'll give them fits. Yeah. I just remember watching that, thinking, "Yeah, you know, those guys never knew they were going to be doing that when they were out there flying."
0: Yeah. So Jeremiah Denton, he was blinking torture, um, and and you realize that then. And and you were in the club watching that with a bunch of the other pilots from your squadron, so that that must have been a pretty sobering sight to see as as you guys prepared to go online yourselves.
1: Well, it it should have been, but it really wasn't because it's you know there's a thing called the breaks of Navy Air, which your dad knows full well, and it's the the right stuff. The movie *Tom and Wolf* captured captured naval aviation perfectly, where these guys are all at the funeral of one of the other test pilots of the, the astronauts and their uh, packs. They've all got their uh, hats over their head. And, and like I said, old Joe was a good guy, but he just didn't have the right stuff. Right. The North Vietnamese didn't realize it, but by capturing all these naval aviators, they had captured the biggest bunch of optimists in the history of the world. Cause every single one of those guys, um, uh, uh in, in flight training, a young lieutenant was up there saying, uh, everybody looked to your left and we all looked to our left. He said, everybody looked to your right and we all looked to our right. He said, one of the three of you is not going to be around in five years.
0: But you never every think single, it's going to be you, right?
1: Every single guy in that room was wondering which one of the other two guys it was going to be.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that's about right. That That's exactly how my dad describes it as well. So when, when you get online and... Um, you you were telling me the other day the first station you went to it wasn't actually Yankee Station there was there was one area off of Vietnam you went before Yankee Station.
1: Yeah, we had three carriers online at any one time, and Dixie Station was south of the DMZ in South Vietnam with our ally, and then there were two carriers up at Yankee Station up north, and uh, the reason was we flew at, at night up north we didn't fly at night during in South Vietnam because there were too many friendlies down there. And at night if you had an it's tough, but uh said uh, yeah. Uh, uh, so we uh uh we started off at Dixie Station and it was um just like flying on the range, except like we had a fac, an army an army or marine fac told us where to drop and market with smoke and we just dropped our bombs there. Right. We we took off, we didn't know where we were going, and we just had to log in and we went wherever they needed us and which is different from this uh north where every target was planned, and yeah. they um, um, uh, um is a a lot scarier. We had very few losses down south uh, yeah, and the ones down south were mostly pilot error
0: well i, I want to ask you a couple of questions about about some of your mission so uh, the the mission. That you were actually shot down on. I, I know you've got very vivid memories of that, and we'll talk. I'd like to talk about that in a minute. But so your very first combat mission, do you remember much about that? Do, it, does there anything stand out, or do most of the missions all kind of blend together?
1: No, no. We flew together as a, as a, a division, four of us, same guys most of the time. They did different things. That somebody had to watch or something. You have to rotate it. But uh, the same four guys on that first mission were with me when I got shot down six months later. And um, but the first mission we went out as a FAC, and there's a machine gun down there shooting it. as You can see the tracers coming up in the woods, and the FAC shot a smoke rocket into it. Uh, I said, "Okay, put your bombs down there." And you just see the bullets coming out. I'm like, oh, "Yeah, sure." And so we went in, and we had uh, uh, we were dry- dropping 250-pound bombs, which are tiny little things, with a 30-inch Fuse extension daisy cutters and jumped in my first bomb went right down through the trees and the, the daisy cutter hit right where that machine gun was and it was a big flash and then nothing no more fire down there
0: so we you took care, the, and, took care of the problem
1: and I, yeah the, the guys that got landed again and said boy you just killed somebody <laughs> i didn't think of it that way it just there was a target and i hit it
0: yeah
1: and uh, that was my first mission and then, and then we had 95 and a half more missions and then the last mission was uh yeah so um, did you
0: could, you were actually shot down on your 97th mission so how how many trips to yankee station did that? Did you fly all of those missions uh, one time on the line, or did you come onto the line for a period of time, go offline for some R and R, and then come back? How did the, how did that all work?
1: You know, we got the, the carriers rotated, and, and we usually come out, and we go to a Yankee a Dixie station, then we go up to the southern uh, Yankee station with the southern provinces of North Vietnam, and then the last one was. Hanoi high falling and all the really high flack areas. And we all, you know, just the rotation just went, you went wherever you're supposed to go. And, um, uh, so then we, we just did a lot of missions after that. I, I got actually got hit, uh, several times before, but I just put a hole in the airplane. Right. And I came back and, and my guys would patch it up. Um, um, uh, in fact, I did, they, these were such small holes, bullet holes. Uh, I get back, uh, it's had a hole in the, the fuel tank and, and, um, I just flew back, and they fixed it on the ground. Um, But then that last one, uh, it's an awful day. It took off in the morning. I was the spare on that. I was writing a flight schedule. I put myself down as a spare. One of the other guys' airplane was down. So I went on this. I wasn't the guys I usually flew with, and we couldn't get into the target. And we tried, 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 tried. And uh, uh, we ended up dropping our bombs into water on safe flew back to the ship and grumble, grumble, grumble. <laughs> the second flight, I was back with my original guys. Um, it was the last flight. Uh, uh, it was actually it was after lunch at Hamburger. I got to think about this for a long time. Hamburger, French fries, my favorite food for lunch. And then uh, uh, we got back in the airplane and we went out. Our target was socked in still. So they sent us down to Cueve Inn, which had box cars on the railroad. Targets of opportunity. And it was a big flap trap. It turns out there about five or six A4s shot down there, of which I was a second or a third. And it, it was a uh, big flap trap. And uh, my, gun, my gun sight was out also. So I'm not going to go. Uh, uh, I just, by, by, uh section lead was a, a, a rag instructor and had a good reputation for being a good bomber. So I'm going to fly on Don's wing. And when he pickles his bombs, I'll drop mine. And I think so. I got to think about that for a long time, too, because they were shooting at him and didn't lead him enough. And there I was right behind him, uh, my airplane. And so like, that's what I told him when I got back. He said,
0: yeah, so that I, you really I, think they were shooting at him then, but but missed and, and got it. It makes
1: a good story. Yeah. It makes a good story. I actually never saw the in flak that hit me because I was too busy concentrating on formation and concentrating on the target. And uh, this that came about later. By anyway, the uh, so there I was coming down. It was like Charlie Plum said in one of his books. He said, um, um, all, the, all the red lights came on in my cockpit at once. Then all the lights went out, no electricity at all. Um, then both the hydraulic pumps went down to zero. And, um, and I knew that went long and pretty soon it started to roll. I, I tried to be you a know, breakout control, but the controls were locked. So the A4, you could disconnect the hydraulics. And I knew this was a bad a bad aileron. I pulled it anyway. It wrapped up really tight. I think the tail blew off the airplane. And that's when I got to join the Hanoi skydiving club.
0: Yeah. So when that happened to you, how far? So, by the way, so this is June 17th, 1966, uh, The the day you got shot down. And when, when this happened to you, how far from the coastline were you? Was there any hope that you'd be picked up by
1: a rescue craft or anything at that point? Well there was. The target was right, I mean, just past the beach into the trees um, after the, the, the beach line. I got the, the airplane up and got the uh, um, pointed out to sea. and I actually got out over the water. but the only mission I flew there that I'm aware of had a 30 knot sea breeze. Well, I guess usually blowing from the land out to the water and, uh, this one was blowing the other way. So I ejected, I saw the airplane go down the flames and stuff coming out the pieces going into the water and also the parachute coming out and I look and the ground is coming up under my feet going the wrong direction. And, uh, I came down landed on the beach about several hundred yards in, in, in from the water.
0: Oh, so the wind and blew air- you, the wind blew you inland then.
1: Yeah. The airplane actually got in the water. Yeah. Um, uh, and so anyway it's not, like your dad said bad day
0: yeah that that is a bad day and uh, i mean and you're 26 years old at this point i mean i can't if anybody listening to this podcast just think to themselves what they were doing when they were 26 it's probably very something very different than what you were doing that day so when you came down and you were captured who were the people that captured you? Were they North Vietnamese regulars, militia, or just townspeople? What What was that like?
1: Well, I was a kid. Very, very, very young looking. But he had hold old French rifle, shaken like a leaf. and, and uh, uh, But he had an Army shirt on and a pith helmet with an Army logo. But he had peasant pants. It was probably part of the militia. That's what I figured out later. There were a bunch of them. That I could. I mean, the ride down the parachute wasn't very long, but I did get a chance to look out and see them all coming right toward where this parachute's going to stop. And right. I, I knew it was over. Um, but I hit the deck and, and uh, got on my parachute and, and, uh, it the only bush that's there is just saw them all coming in. So I radioed the flight and said, uh, uh, turn some send the helicopters back. They can't get in. And, uh, which they did, and, and uh,
0: why? Why? Why did you tell them not to bring helicopters in? Did, would they it, have caught fire? Got,
1: oh yeah, they put all these guys with rifles. Yeah, Helico- hovering helicopters are very bad targets, and most of the rescues they pulled off were were not on the beach; they were in the woods somewhere. And the hard thing was trying to find out exactly where the pilot was and drop the um, the lanyard down to hook up to to get pulled yeah. out of. Uh, That same area, just before I got shot down, another our sister squadron lost a guy. He came down on top of one of the hills. That was an easier extraction for the helicopter. They just came in because all the people were down at the bottom of the hill. They came in and dropped the thing down. He just jumped onto it, grabbed hold, and they took off with him flying flying behind this airplane like Superman. Wow! Um, Back out over the water, came my So, so when
0: you when you got shot down. And you're there on the ground. Did your wingman uh, make a, a pass or two trying to locate you on the ground?
1: They did. The, th- the three of them. They were up there, up there flying around fairly high. They they saw me already, and they they saw the parachute where the parachute was. They saw these people coming in, and that's why I told them to go back because they probably would have. I actually called them to make a strafing pass, and they said, "Well, we don't know exactly where you are. But we're not going to go in there shooting." We know exactly where you are, and uh, so they're up there going around in circles. And uh, um, and I just sent them back. I said if they came down here. You now there were probably a hundred Vietnamese with rifles, all them with rifles, coming into Fort Me. They would have been the, sick, uh, the helicopter would have got shot down for sure. Yeah, and the helicopter was off of our ship, off the Hancock. And so, um, um, so that, that, the breaks in the air.
0: Yeah, that that that's a bad break. Um, and so you were telling me before, so when you got captured on that, that first day on June 17th, um, you were fairly far south because it, it actually took them 12 days to move you from where you got shot down until you got to the Wallow Prison, otherwise known as the, the Hanoi Hilton, right? So yep. what what was that like? What Were they moving you day and night or did they move you only at night and then hunker down during the day?
1: We only moved at night. And sometimes we were walking and I, I was really badly banged up and blood. I got shot coming down the parachute, which I didn't realize till I was on the ground. And uh, and, um, we were walking just at night, nobody spoke English and I had one interrogator who had a pointy talkie, you know, there was in Vietnamese on one side, English on the other. And he goes, and point to what he's saying. He point the other one, I just, what is that french i don't I don't speak and um and he, he's got kind of beat on that's the first time i got in the ropes was when he was trying to get me to talk when he didn't speak english he couldn't have understood it he wanted me to write stuff And i said no way i can't I, I no i, I and he, he'd sit there and say something in vietnamese right and uh uh and point to the walkie the pointy talkie on the thing and, and uh i'd act like i couldn't read it and right then, he, got, he got really mad and, 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 the guard whacked me with a rifle a couple of times and then wrapped me up in the ropes. I again, I I don't know. You know, I just, just kept playing dumb.
0: So, so I didn't know that. That's something about your story. I didn't know. So they actually put you in the ropes and tortured you on your way to the Wallow prison.
1: Yeah. We stopped that 12 days. We stopped about every quarter of a mile. It felt like we got joined the next day by two air force guys. who actually been shot down a couple of days. Before me, further south, and uh, and so it was, um, and they were getting paraded, uh, stripped down to our underwear, and paraded through all these villages and stuff, and uh, they're throwing sticks and rocks and uh, everything at us, and uh, it, was, it was not a fun time. But that was that was at night. They wake the whole village up and get them out, um, and and the, the political cadre get up and talk about these evil U.S. aggressors and. and whether other kind of slang, the commies used. And,
0: and, and then, then, what uh, did they do during the day? And and I imagine they didn't want to move you during the day because you would be ease more easily uh, identified. Uh, I saw
1: se- I saw several planes from my ship go over, and in fact, the day after, the day I got shot down, one of them was shot down. The next day, another one of them was shot down, looking for me, looking for the uh, second guy. Right. Uh, what what was it, the photo? F eight taking pictures and the other was his escort and, uh, uh, and both of them ended up as POWs. So they beat me to Hanoi because they were a little bit further north than I was and they they just got went straight there. And wow! I didn't get in until the 29th of June, which happened to be the first day we bombed Hanoi.
0: Yeah, so that, that must have been a, a really weird feeling, being on the ground, held captive in Vietnam and to see your your shipmates flying overhead and you knew they were searching for you, but there's just not a lot that, that they could do. They couldn't,
1: they they couldn't do anything anyway.
0: Yeah. Um, so, so talk about that a little bit. So after 12 days, they finally get you to the Wallow prison. They, where, what section of the prison? Is there a particular section that they put you in when you first got there?
1: The first section I did for new guys well, I have a place called New Guy Village, but there are already POWs in that one. So they took me down to Heartbreak Hotel and just threw me in a cell. And uh, I think they forgot about me because within hours, there are air raid sirens and there were bombs going off everywhere. It was uh, first raid on the Hanoi Petroleum. There's big drums that hold all the aviation gas and everything. Uh, that, that's what got hit. And I knew our rules of engagement were we did not bomb inside. A circle around Hanoi. And so it was, uh, um, I said, I know we're in Hanoi, that something, something changed. And they, they're going crazy. And this big PA system they have all over Hanoi where they, they're yelling, and they usually use it for calisthenics for all, uh, all those happy uh, uh, communists to get out and exercise for their Uncle Ho. And, um, and uh, nobody really say anything to me. And they're just yelling, I can hear them banging on doors. And uh, Robbie Reisner, who's been a long-term senior Air Force POW, happened to be brought back for something, for an interrogation or be used for propaganda or something. And so he, he got all the whole group in there, and uh, we went through and said our names and stuff like that. And I knew two of the guys were from the Hancock, Len Eastman, who I ended up living with for a little while after the NLA March, and, and, uh, and uh, Cole Black. Both of them F 8 pilots. One's a photo guy and the other was a, uh, his escort. And I said, that's like old home week. And Ted Kaufman was there. it was a neighbor of mine at Lemoore. I knew he'd been shot down a few days before I was. So it's like old home week in this cell. And I didn't, didn't wasn't interrogated. Then. I think they were up to their rear ends in interrogations. Plus, Hanoi had just been bombed. And so they're trying to decide whether they're going to shoot us or what, what uh, any change to do. So they didn't do anything with me for about three days. And, I, and by that time I was dying of thirst and uh, hungry. And and so I looked up and said, the English portion said, if need, in need of anything, say pow cow to the guard. So I'd probably pronounce it Baokeo or something, P-A-O-C-A-O. And um, he came and he looked surprised when he opened the door. He, he even, you know, and started slapping around a little bit. He made me sit down and he yelled, a couple of officers came in, who wanted to know who I was and whatever. I thought that was a little late to be asking them. I went through four days of really rough stuff. Ended up in getting a set of pajamas They were brown, blood-stained, filthy, and um, uh, and I know it, was, it had the word on it 231 TU-31. Well, I knew that Vietnam was a French colony. 2 way in French means to kill. And I said, 231, this must be my funeral shroud. And uh, I figured uh, they gave me this thing, and then they went away. As soon as it started getting dark, um, there had a lot of noise everywhere. The, uh, trucks coming and going, slamming, and uh, cells, and some of the other wings were slamming shut. And, and, uh, and they took me out and threw me in the back of this Jeep, and uh, I handcuffed to a, a guy, as soon as American, and he leaned over to me and said, "I'm Robbie Reisner. Who are you?" <laughs> I said, "That's that Colonel that was on the cover of, of Time magazine back in the spring, and uh, and I read that he was shot down and stuff. He was had been a big ace in Korea. He had eight kills in Korea. Right, yeah. And I mean, I knew who he was. I we, when I was a little kid, there, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be like him. And uh, but we didn't talk about that then. We didn't, and I never saw him again." Well, I communicated a couple of times. I never saw him again until after the war. I told him that story about going to the Fujiya Hotel in Japan, and, uh, and all, all the big aces were in there for a R&R, and, uh, and I'm sure he was in there, but he didn't pick up on the fact that it didn't dawn on me then that he was probably one of them that was over there.
0: Right. Well, that's quite a journey. Thanks again for listening to this first conversation with Paul Galanti. Be sure to look for new episodes with Paul coming out soon. If you'd like to hear me ask Paul about anything specific, be sure to contact us soon so I can include your question in the lightning round in one of our upcoming podcast episodes with him. You can contact us with questions or feedback by emailing us at theyankeiairpirate at gmail.com. That's theyankeiairpirate.com all one word, at gmail.com. Also, you can visit and like our Facebook page, The Yankee Air Pirate. The page has lots of pictures and video of the people, places, and things we discuss in our podcast series. You can also message us directly via that Facebook page. Be sure to rate and review our podcast on your podcast player. It's an easy way to help us spread these stories. We appreciate all our listeners. Simplify.